all of you by all of the stuff that I have on the table. Man, apparently I got a lot to say, so we'll see how this goes. I'm glad that you're here, glad you're here online if this is your first time here, or even if you've been here before, welcome to Thrive Church. We're so glad that you're hanging out with us today, whether you're in the live studio audience or whether you are gathered digitally online. And um, I get a chance to do this every now and then because I have the microphone. And um, sometimes growing up as a preacher's kid can be rough. So I get to say happy 21st birthday to my daughter Elizabeth. Yes. And to Cindy, because today's her birthday too. So they're birthday buddies here in our church, and we're kind of excited about that. So anyway, um, we celebrated one birthday last week, Thrive's birthday. We get to celebrate this birthday this week, I'm telling you great week. It's a lot of fun. So last week, um, in in the process of of celebrating, um, I wanted to make sure that we looked backwards a little bit at some of the the, um, events that, you know, brought us to be who we are, this this thing, this community that we call Thrive Church. But, But I also really felt like it was time to dream again. And I know, it's a little difficult to do that because, you know, global pandemic and all this other stuff that's going on in the world. And yet, I still feel like God dreams, and he dreams for us, and he dreams with us, and it was time for us to begin to dream a little bit. And we really um, were kind of talking about this idea of being people of presence. And, and the, the thing that keeps running through my head over and over again is what if, what if the defining feature of the people who call Thrive Church home were that they were people of presence? When people would walk in the door, they're like, well, there's something going on here. And you might not be able to put their finger on it. That's okay. But there's a, there's a presence and because the Spirit of God is, is in this place. And it's not just in this place because this is just the church collected. When you guys go home, then it's the church distributed. And so what would it be like to be people of presence in your workplace? What would it be like to be people of presence in your neighborhood? Or in your extended families, right? I mean, what would it be like to to be a, a people of presence. And interestingly enough, as I was prepping for that message, so two weeks ago, as I was thinking about this, um, a particular thought occurred to me. Now, full disclosure, I too am trying to learn how to listen to the voice of God. And, and it, it, sometimes it's an easier task than others. Have you noticed this? And and a lot of it has to do with the amount of noise in my head. And trust me, there's a lot of stuff going on up here, okay? And so consequently, I I know that I have to slow my roll to try to be able to listen to what it is that God is saying to me. And um, lately, God has been pointing out either specific stories or biblical passages. That's how he's communicating with you. Your mileage may vary. But for me, this is, this is how God has been speaking to me. Apparently, i, I got to work a, at it a little bit. And so he'll give me, a, um, uh, like I said, a story or something. Um, during my sabbatical, uh, I, was, I was doing some journaling, and a particular book and, and chapter crossed my mind. And I thought, well, that's interesting. So I actually wrote it down and I went and I looked it up and literally felt like God was speaking directly to my heart on something specific that he wrote to an ancient people well over 2,000 years ago. But that's the beauty. God's word is, is consistent. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so 
he can use those words that he spoke to speak to us today. And it was a beautiful thing, but it just happened to be. Now, here's the interesting thing. I don't ever remember reading that particular book and chapter. Maybe I did, but I don't recall it, and I certainly couldn't tell you what was in it at the time. I can tell you what's in it now, but I couldn't tell you then. And so there was something in there, and God poked at my heart, and he um, offered that, and, and I was able to engage with him. So anyway, um, this time, though, uh, as I was prepping for this, the, the message last week, um, there was an Old Testament story that came to, my, my, uh, came to mind. And so I looked up the story, and there was this part of me, I gotta tell you, this is really interesting. I'm, I'm looking at the story, and I'm thinking about it, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, and I, I just want, I just want to kind of share this with you. So, um, so I process things in my journal. Uh, this is how I try to slow myself down so that I can hear what God is saying. Um, and, and the physical act of writing tends to slow me down a little bit. <clears throat> um, and if, if, if you wonder, I'm also a very slow typist, and, and I know this, um, because my 21-year-old daughter told me that I was the slowest typist on the planet, and she rolled her eyes. So I know this is true. So anyway, <clears throat> so I'll, I'll tend to um, write things down a little bit. And so this was um, uh, Thursday, the, the 7th of, of October. And, and that's another reason why you might want to journal things, because then you can put a day and a time on it, and, and you can look, at, look back and see where God has been interacting with you a little bit. <clears throat> and so... Um, I wrote in here, I said, well, while we will be celebrating this weekend, I believe there's an opportunity to dream again. I really felt like that was, that was true. And so I just kind of asked the Lord, what is, what is your dream for Thrive Church? And this, is, this has been the question that I've been wrestling with um, for some time because I really felt like we were moving in a particular path as a church, then the pandemic happened, right? And God's like doing this major reset in churches nationwide. And so um, there was this thought that I wrote. I'm like, I'm sensing that the Lord is saying that the good works that you want to do will come from your time in my presence. And of course, I talked about that last week. And, and as I was thinking about that time in the presence and how good works can come out of that, my mind went um, to the story of Isaiah in the temple. And so we're going to be talking a little bit more about that. Um, this growing sense that doing good in the world starts ultimately with God. And when we started Thrive Church, it was a big deal. We wanted to be impactful in our community. But, you know, here's the thing. When we see something or we hear of something that stirs something in our heart, where we get a little frustrated, you know, what makes you angry? What makes you upset? Um, those are oftentimes you know, the stirrings of the Holy Spirit. But here's what those stirrings are. And you've you got to be careful because sometimes we want to jump right in. And, and sometimes action is called for immediately. But in my experience and the experience of others, um, when you have those stirrings, when something pricks your heart like that, it's usually an invitation to engage with God first. God, I am feeling this way. I am not sure why. What do you want me to do with this? Because we'll feel emotions and some of us will jump to action, some of us will jump to prayer, and all of those things can be good, but it needs to start with God. God, why, why did you put that in my heart? What, what's going on here? Why is this so important, uh, seems to be so important to me? Is there something that you want to talk to me? So 
always look at those stirrings in your heart as an invitation to engage with God. And it's something like we catch certain things when we're in his presence. And when we're spending time with him and, and we're processing through some of these things, that's when God begins to speak. And, and you have to remember that God's love always starts with the individual. He loves you, fills you up, and then spills over to everyone. Because, of course, God's heart's on the whole world, but he understands how to do this a lot better than you and I do. And so we start with him. So in my prep, this, this story of Isaiah encountering God in the temple came to mind. And so I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. And so what I want to do is I want to uh, read through this, um, and we're going to put this passage under the micros- microscope and look at it in some detail. And we're going to trust that God is communicating things to us through all this. And, and what I'm pointing out, you, you may have something else. That's okay. Um, but if you're a Bible scholar type, um, you're going you're gonna to like this because we're, we're going we're gonna to drill down on, on a lot of this. So um, while you're trying to find Isaiah chapter 6, let me explain a little bit about the context, what's going on here. So the story occurs roughly 740 BCE. Now how many of you, when you were in school, you learned about BC and AD? Before Christ and AD was after death, right? That's kind of how I learned it. Well, nowadays, uh, scholars, um, they divide it a little bit differently because not everybody in the world are, are Christians. And so what they'll say is BCE, which means before Christian era. And instead of AD, now it's CE, which means Christian era. Just sort of point of reference. You don't have to like it, but that's just kind of the way scholarship has dealt with the fact that there's multiple um, traditions that are looking at history. So 740 BCE. Um, And we know this by mention of a king's name, and we'll see that here in just a second. The major threat to this nation that we call Judah is, um, and Israel to their... um, uh, their brothers and sisters to the north, major threat is a country uh, called Assyria, which is in the north of modern-day Iraq. <clears throat> and in 722 BCE, Assyria sweeps through the northern kingdom and completely wipes out w- what was known as Israel. And so there's this little nation of Judah to the south. So, so there are some serious geopolitics going on. See, you, you thought that only nowadays we have geopolitics. No, 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 it existed back then too. A little smaller scale, but you understand. The author of this book, um, Isaiah, is probably an aristocrat, most likely, given some of the access that he has both to the royal household and also to um, uh, the temple. This is really quite interesting. There's uh, even some thought that he might be related to the king, that he might be of like a uh, shirt-tail relative of the, of the royal household. And it seems that he was, uh, his, his occupation was a scribe to the royal household. And we find that in uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 26. I encourage you to look it up. It might be interesting for you to see that. Uh, but... The, the people that are mentioned here in Isaiah 6 are also mentioned historically in 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 26. So here we have this individual who is uniquely positioned between both the temple and the uh, aristocracy of the day, and he's a scribe, okay? 
And so here's Isaiah, and we're going to read this, chapter 6. I'm only going to read a few verses, and then we're going to pause, and we're going to take a look at it, okay? So Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings, with two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Just over and over. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? This is the word of the Lord and we believe it. So let's take this, pull it apart a little bit and try to understand more deeply what's happening here because there's all kinds of stuff. First, um, what we find in um, uh, verse 1 is in the year that King Uzziah died. This is the king that's mentioned in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. In the year that King Uzziah died, and we know that was roughly 740 B.C. E. Roughly. King Uzziah is an interesting character because in the history of Israel, there are a number of kings um, that are considered good and there are even more kings that are considered bad. Uh, There's not a whole lot of good kings. Uzziah was actually considered a good king. And And the way we know this is that in 2 Chronicles it says... Um, that he did right in the eyes of the Lord. I I don't know about you, but I hope that's what's said about me. I want to know that I've done right in the eyes of the Lord. Um, He prospered Israel. Uh, He was a military innovator. In fact, one of the things that he's credited with is putting things like catapults and things that launch arrows, called we call now ballistas, on his fortifications so that he could shoot back at the enemy. And that was a relatively new innovation at the time. The problem was, is that Uzziah ended up becoming prideful. And of course, it's very typical. Remember the phrase, absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? So when you're king, one of the great things you have to be careful of is pride. And so King Uzziah, at one point, decided that um, he was going to burn incense at the temple. Now, you and I kind of sit back and look at that and go, oh, well, that's nice. He's going to go and worship God. Here's the problem. Only priests are allowed to burn incense at the temple. That's their job. No one else's. And so there he was, walking into the temple with his his incense, and the priests stop him, as they should. But he's the king. So you can imagine that um, irresistible force meets um, unmovable object, right? So you have the priests who are saying, you can't do this. And he says, I'm the king, I can do whatever I want to do. And what does the Lord do? He steps in and he strikes King Uzziah with leprosy. And it's said that he ran out of the temple 
because he was so afraid because he knew that he offended God. Now, please understand, I think in some ways it came from a good, good, good place. He wanted to honor God for the success and prosperity of his country. He just chose to do it inappropriately. And God let him know that in very dramatic terms. Would you agree? So he lived in a separate palace by himself. And apparently, not long after, he dies. And so that's where we pick up the story in Isaiah chapter 6. King Uzziah was more or less a good king for Israel. who kind of tripped up. Um, in the end. So he died about four, uh, 740 BCE, roughly. Now, also notice here, um, Isaiah writes that he saw the Lord. Now, this word here is a general term, but very often it's associated um, with uh, a vision. He had a, a particular vision. So if he's not a priest, he's not going to be in the temple. So we have to presume that he's not busy working in the temple, but rather he sees a vision of the temple. And because of his proximity to both the royal household and the temple in Jerusalem, it's likely that he understood the vision as being in the temple. I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Okay, so this is a vision. This isn't actually occurring. He's seeing a vision kind of like a a dream. In some ways, what we're seeing here is a direct contrast to what he grew up in. So Isaiah would have spent some of his time in the court of King Uzziah. He's a scribe, so he would have been there, and he would have seen the majesty and the splendor of of the Israelite court. He would have seen all of the finery, all the beauty, and now he's, in contrast, seeing the courtroom, the throne room, of God himself. Can you imagine what that would look like? There's a contrast here. And fortunately for us then, he goes and he describes it in more detail. He says, above him were seraphim, each with six wings, with two wings that covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. Now, that is a strange sight. I can't imagine. And you have an ancient individual trying to describe a truly fantastic vision. Um, interestingly enough, seraphim are mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. And um, it, it just seems quite difficult to describe. So oftentimes you'll see seraphim and cherubim. And every time we see the cherubim, we think of the little round pudgy angels, right? You know, the ones with the little tiny wings and Renaissance artwork. That's, we call it cherub. Oh, they have a cherub-like face. Have you heard this term? Okay, in ancient times in Israel, cherub, cherubim, which is plural, cherub, would be similar to a sphinx. Lion's body, wings of eagles, face of a human being, a truly terrifying thing. We're not talking about little baby angels. We're talking about fantastical beasts. Does this make sense? Seraphim, on the other hand, a very specific term in Hebrew means fire serpent. These are dragons, folks. So we're not talking about cute little things at all. We're talking about truly terrifying visions. Seraphim and cherubim are not what you think they are. And here Isaiah is trying to describe what, what he's seeing. You know, they're covering their face. They're covering, I, I, I don't know what that means. 
I, I can't, I mean, I have a pretty good imagination. I'm not sure that I could actually draw that out, which is just, you know, I would like to try. But seraphim typically means this idea of fire serpent. Terrifying and beautiful all at the same time. And so we see these, they were above him. And they're calling out to one another. Here it is in verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth uh, is full of his glory. Now, there's other, again, similar imagery to this um, in, in the Bible, most notably in the book of Revelation, towards the end, and right at the end of the, of the library of books that we find in the scriptures. Um, there's this constant worshipful refrain going back and forth. We see this in the throne room of God in uh, Revelation chapter 4 and a couple of other places. Four in particular, though. Now, please understand, and I think this is really important that we, we point this out because it might be, might be easy to fall into this trap. You have this group of angelic beings who have this constant refrain. They're saying this phrase over and over and over again. This is not for God's ego. You know, we don't, we don't see this because God needs to be um, validated. But rather, it starts in the hearts of the angelic beings. They're doing it because they know he's worthy of it. See the difference? It's not for his ego. It is actually done on behalf of the people or the beings that are saying it. They say it because he's, he's worthy. And I think this is an important thing to, to consider, too. Um, we kind of sang about it a little bit earlier. Worship does not start Sunday at 10 a.m. Because all of creation is worshiping. That's what we find in Revelation chapter 4. And what we see here, the whole earth is full of his glory. Rather, worship continues and Thrive Church joins in the worship 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Do you see that? We get to join in what's already going on. and, and um, join not only in that refrain, but be concurrent with all of it. And I really like how this phrase is, is put. The whole earth is full of his glory. If you're looking. If you're paying attention to it. Now there are some people who, they just connect with God in nature anyway. Um, I have a friend of mine, uh, he just didn't feel like he connected with God unless he was outside. Which is really hard for him in the wintertime because he lived in Wisconsin. It's a little cold. Still, he could still meet God outside. Um, John Calvin, the great uh, reformer, observed that all creation testifies to a creator. Although he says that it's incomplete without Jesus, I understand that. Of course, that's not our subject for today, but all civilizations acknowledge something greater than themselves. Why? Because they observe something greater than themselves in nature, in the things around them, in the created order. It's a holy is Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. Yeah, because he made it. And it's amazing stuff. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. I'm sorry, but that had to have been cool. (laughs) Just terrifying, but pretty cool. 
Again, he's seeing this in a vision, so it's not like he's actually experiencing it for real, but apparently he experienced it enough in his vision to feel it with himself in order to write it down. It's thunderous. Not just the words, but how they were, they were saying it. Because you need to understand, the temple was not a small building. It was a rather large building. And smoke is often the symbol of God being present. Um, if you read in the book of Exodus, when God meets with Moses on the top of Mount Sinai, it's within a cloud of smoke. Smoke is evidence that God is present. And then when God would meet with his people in the tabernacle and in the temple, it would be filled with smoke. And so we see this over and over again. Now, the entire scene is pretty spectacular. Would you agree? Yeah. I read once that Washington, D.C. was designed to intimidate foreign dignitaries. It was a show of power. And and actually, we find this um, even in in the modern day. Um, Quick little story. I used to work for uh, an office furniture manufacturer that sold to Walmart. We would outfit most of their offices nationwide. And I was told by one of our sales reps <clears throat> that when you tried to sell to Walmart, they would, uh, you would meet with your salesperson and you would meet in, t- in, in a large room that was about the size of a football field. And it had high ceilings in it. And there were all kinds of tables and chairs. And the message was clear. You are just one of many people trying to sell to us. You want to talk about intimidating, Right? So we have a city that's designed to intimidate. We have uh, corporate offices designed to intimidate. But I imagine that the throne room of God was probably more than all of that. I mean, just the thought of seeing fantastical creatures and hearing something so thunderous and robes filling the temples and not just robes, but smoke and all of these things. I can't even imagine what that might be like. I can't imagine how intimidating that would be and beautiful at the same time. I can't, I can hardly grasp that idea. And so we, we have this notion of a very intimidating type of throne room and yet the writer of Hebrews gives us a slightly different perspective. Let's take a look. He says, therefore, whoever this brilliant writer was, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, in case you didn't know who he was talking about, led us home firmly to the faith that we profess. Let's hold on to that. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Man, I'm glad for that. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So you got this picture of Isaiah in the throne room of God just completely overwhelming to him. And then the writer of Hebrews says, yeah, but you can approach that throne with confidence because of who sits on it. And what's so amazing is Both are true. Both pictures are true. They're both there and you can find grace and you can find mercy and we can find 
strength. And this is the reason why, as a people group, we chase after the presence of God. We chase after this for two reasons. One is that we connect with something far greater than ourselves. And what does that do for us? It gives us humility. Because we're not at the top of the food chain. But there is something greater than us. There is something that sees more than we see, that is more powerful and more present than we can possibly even imagine. And that humility gives us the best position and the best posture to actually be a part of God's kingdom. And I think those two things are important. We're in a position where we are humble, but we're also in the posture of saying, I need you, which is also humility. Recognizing that we may not be able to do this ourselves. This is why we may receive mercy and find grace. That's what Hebrews is telling us. But also, at the same time, you, you can know with a great deal of confidence that that greatness, that overwhelming presence and power, cares about you as an individual. You, sitting right there in that chair. I don't mean you collectively, I mean you individually. And you know what that gives us? That's hope. Humility and hope go hand in hand. Because I know that I cannot save myself. God knows I try, but I can't do it. But I can also be hopeful that there's a God who loves me who's going to provide me with that mercy and grace when I need it the most. And strength. Does this make sense? Nod your head so I know you're awake. Yeah. This is an important thing. Humility and hope. And so, really, uh, this morning, uh, I'm just going to kind of encourage you that as you chase his presence this week, I want you to imagine that throne room. I mean, do your best, right? Because obviously it's going to be bigger than anything you can imagine, but, but think about it a little bit. How will you encounter him in the throne room? How do you think you might feel? What will you say? I mean, if you think about the throne room and you think about these angelic beings... How likely are you to bring your laundry list of complaints and things that you want and start rattling them off to him? Because that's what we do, don't we? It's easy for us to do. Or will you start from a different place, joining the angelic beings, declaring the holiness of the Lord? Oh, God. You're so good. The whole earth is full of your glory. And yeah, there's all kinds of messes and there's things that need to happen. But you know what? When I really look at the whole thing, when I look at the stuff that you created, man, this is awesome. The people that I know and and the relationships that I have, and yeah, not all of them are perfect, but oh man, God, you, you made all of this. And you take that position of humility and hope at the same time. And really, here's the question. The laundry list or the worship, which do you think is going to give you the most confidence? So I want to encourage you to make your way to the throne room this week. 
Because he's there, and here's the beautiful thing. He will receive you. You don't have to make an appointment. The throne room is big enough for you to show up, and he will allow you that audience. And I think that's good news. How about you? Let's pray. Jesus, we gather every single Sunday. And we join with all of creation, worshiping you for who you are. We sing songs. We pray. We have conversations with one another. And you're present. You're here. In in some ways, this is kind of like an outpost of your throne room that you sit enthroned even here at Thrive Church. And whether we're gathered together physically in, in the auditorium or whether we're gathered online, your presence is there. And God, I am both humbled and hopeful. I'm humbled because you, you choose to, to be with us, to hang out with us, to, to care about the things we care about. And I'm hopeful for the exact same reasons that you might intervene on our behalf. You might give us the insight and wisdom. You might grant us a certain amount of healing. You might um, show us new insights, just things that we need. Some grace, a little bit of mercy and strength. So my prayer, Lord, is that every one of us who's gathered here today would seek you out in your throne room that we would find a welcome reception and a good king who has our best interests at heart and can give us maybe not what we want, but exactly what we need. And so God, as we sing, inhabit the praises of your people. Fill the room with your spirit. Visit who you want to visit. Do the work that only you can do. And and like, like Isaiah, here am I. Here am I. Here we are. We're listening, Lord. We're receptive to the things that you want to do. In Jesus' name.